I wanted to let you know about one thing before we got into 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. We, we had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to go to visit a ministry in the Dominican Republic. It's called Dominican Advance. And you may remember a few months ago, I introduced you to some friends that had come to visit, Josie and Kim Pensinger. Their ministry is, uh, is located on the north side of the island of uh, the Dominican Republic. And uh, it's in the city of Sisua. Maybe some of you have been there before, probably not. Uh, Sisua is um, known, it's got a, a lot of poverty in, in that area. And uh, it's also a destination where prostitution is legal and visible. Um, let's just say there are a lot of single men on the plane on our way there. It's, uh, it's concerning, worrying, all of that. Um, and so for over 15 years, the, the Pensingers have had a vision through Dominican Advance to raise up and to educate young people who will impact the Dominican Republic for Jesus. And so right in the middle of this area of great need, right in the middle of this den of iniquity, this area where, where so, so much poverty is, they planted a Christian school and it's grown to like over 700 students in the past 15 years. Amen? In the middle of, of this area. It's awesome. And so we got to, we got to see the, the kids, all of the different grade levels. We got to go to the high school graduation, which is where they have it in October. But um, it, there was like 30 students that graduated and just an awesome opportunity to be able to, to see and to take part in, um, in what's going on over in the Dominican. And so um, Katie and I are really excited about the future of, of that partnership. And so stay tuned for some opportunities as we uh, devise some trips to go over to minister to kids, to equip teachers, and to expand their footprint as God continues to just pour into that area to affect the Dominican Republic for Jesus. Amen? So if that kind of like spurs something on in the inside of you, inspires you, your heart kind of grabs toward that, make sure you... Uh, Brush up on your Spanish and get your uh, passport ready because it takes a little while. So do both of those things so that you're ready so when the opportunity comes, you're like, yes, this is what we're going to be doing. Um, I want to encourage you, sign up for Cultivate. And then, um, yeah, so all right, we're in, a, we're in a, a sermon series going through 1 Corinthians. And we're five weeks in. We're actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. And I, I love this because... Um, when we go through the Word of God, we're reminded that the Word of God mines the gold out of anyone who reads it. We're, that the Word of God, when we receive it, has the power in and of itself to transform us, change us, mold us, and make us to be more like Christ. And so as your pastor, part of my responsibility is to preach the Word of God. Not to tell you jokes, although sometimes I do. Uh, not to uh, make you like me, although I hope maybe that happens. Uh, my job and role is to preach the Word of God, which means that it's not just to preach the part of the Word of God that we want to hear, but also the part that we need to hear. And the beauty of going through a book of the Bible, a letter here, is that we walk through areas that, that are tough, that are, they, you wouldn't put it on a mug and say, yes, this is, this is what my life's all about. There are tough situations, like next week, don't miss it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul confronts a guy who is sleeping with his father's wife. It's real serious. Like it's getting real. And so um, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But today we're, gonna, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
And I want to remind you that this is not only the inspired Word of God, which I truly believe it is, it is also a letter written a couple thousand years ago to a group of people, Jesus followers, in a city called Corinth on the other side of the world in a different culture. They spoke a different language. So we're literally reading someone else's mail, and Paul is addressing situations, questions, and concerns of which we can surmise based upon context clues in this letter, because we're like only getting one side of this thing. It's like listening to a phone call and only hearing one side of the phone call and trying to figure out what the conversation's about. That's part of the, the issue of even just working through a letter like this together. So I'm not going to have you stand. We're going to kind of work down through it together as we read the Word of God. Um, the title of my message today is Spiritual Leadership. Spiritual Leadership. Because Paul is about to explain what it means to be a Christian spiritual leader. Now, let me just get this out of the way. We live in a culture with leadership and authority issues. <laughs> um, we, we have a hard time trusting authority, just in general. Let me, let me help explain. We mostly distrust. It's weird that, you know, Tuesday, there's something going on. I think we're voting or something. Uh, maybe you've heard. You've heard. Okay. Um, we mostly distrust political leaders. And some of it's kind of a founded reasons because of even what's happened over the past few years. We're like, I don't know. We, we expect political leaders to say one thing and then do another, say something on a debate stage, but then maybe not stand up for it when it comes to signing a bill. Like, we expect partisanship and power grabs to supersede the will of the people. And that happens, and we've seen it happen, and it's, we've seen abuse of power happen, and uh, so we kind of distrust political leaders. We also distrust, for the most part, mainstream news media. Um, that's kind of a, a given these days, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. We kind of look at the other side, like, I don't trust them, or maybe even the side that you're on. You're like, I really don't even trust them. Um, we expect stories to be spun and facts to be twisted, and we expect the biased narrative to supersede the unbiased truth. We expect, like, okay, what's the end goal here? What are they trying to get me to think or believe or to do? And I wish that it were different with spiritual leadership. But with, like, clergy sex scandals and the fall of celebrities that happen almost seems like every week these days, and with church divisions of which you've probably been a part of, and real or felt hypocrisy from church leadership or spiritual pastors and leaders in your own life, it is kind of all led to a decline in confidence and trust in pastors and spiritual leaders. That's where we're at. Let me give you some statistics in case you're like, I don't know if that's true. 1975, 68% of Americans expressed a great deal of confidence in church leadership. 68%, 7 out of 10. But just this past year, the same poll, the Gallup poll, says that it dropped from 68% in 1975 to 31%. So those that would say that they have a great deal of confidence in spiritual leaders has dropped from 7 out of 10 to 3 out of 10, 
And that's just for people that say they have a great deal of hope. I didn't even go down the whole road of like, I kind of sort of maybe have a little bit of confidence and trust in pastors and spiritual leaders. There's just people that would mark off the, on the list, yes, I've got a great deal of confidence and trust in spiritual leaders. So it moves from seven out of 10 to three out of 10. And it sounds just about right, doesn't it? Like if we're really honest, and as alarming as that statistic is, what Paul is about to define when it comes to spiritual leadership in 1 Corinthians 4 is just as alarming because it's not what you would expect. It, it, it actually kind of flies in the face of the way that we view spiritual, church, Christian leadership in today's day and age. He's about to kind of be, confront us with some truth about what it means to be a spiritual leader that um, is probably not what you would expect. And so as you read chapter four, as you walk down through it, keep it, keep your Bible open. You can read it as we're talking about it. Um, it's almost like he tries talking you out of being a spiritual leader. It's weird. Like, I mean, he gets to the point where there's a portion in the middle of chapter four where it's like downright scathing. Like, it's like, man, who would want your job, dude? Like, you're, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm homeless. I got no money. got no friends. Everyone left me. That's what it means. to be. It's like, what? Dude, you keep it. I'm, I'm good. I'll just, I'll do this. The reality is, is that he's really coming down and saying like, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be a spiritual leader, and he almost talks you out of it. And it's funny, when I, whenever I have people come to my office or for counseling, and they'll be like, hey, I really feel like I, I want to be a pastor, um, I, I actually try to talk them out of it. You're like, well, just why would you do that? Like, why would you try to talk someone out? We need more pastors and leaders. We need more spiritual leaders. Like, why, why in the heck would you, like, they're coming to you saying they want to be a pastor. Why would you not encourage that and, and prop that up and why would you talk them out of it? Two reasons. One is um, being a pastor is a terrible job, but it's an unmatched calling. <laughs> it is. Now, if you're thinking like, oh, it's going to be awesome. Like, I just get to do whatever I want. This is great. I get to lead all these people that are volunteers and do whatever they want. Like, that sounds awesome. Like, that's what I want to do. Uh, it's a horrible job, but it's an unmatched calling. And number two, if I could talk you out of it, you're probably not called. So if even after I'm like, hey, this is kind of, this is the, the, the rough and tumble of it. And they're like, ah, I still feel called into this. It's like, okay, well, then let's talk. Because when you know that you know that you know that you know that you know in your knower that the Holy Spirit has put a desire and a calling in you. Like, and, and please hear me. I'm not just talking about pastors that like have microphones on stages and are paid to be a Christian. I'm not talking about that, Okay. So when you hear me talk about spiritual leadership, I'm not talking about like, oh, the staff here at New Life Church. I'm talking about if you lead a life group, if you run a prayer ministry, if you just a, a Christian parent, I'm telling you, you are in spiritual leadership. Whether you like it or not, whether you've accepted it or not, whether you'd like to go down that road or not, like you're called into that to some level or degree. And I understand that that's varying and, you know, teachers are, are judged differently and all of that. I, I completely, completely get that, but... If you know that you're called and God has put a desire and a calling on the inside of you, then the disappointment of people and the unmatched expectations from the church can't pull you out of it. That you just know that you know that you know that God has called you to it. Because the reality is, is our calling is not determined by man's approval 
or criticism. Which means, and this is freeing for me, even as a pastor, I'm like, which means that at the end of the day, I want you to like me, but if you don't like me, like, I, I, I answer to him. I want to make sure that he's okay with, with me. And so I wonder if the reason why we've become so disillusioned with spiritual leadership is maybe because we've been aspiring to the wrong definition of what spiritual leadership is in our world. And that is what Paul is confronting in the Corinthian church. And that is what I hope, as we read through this, you can learn from, we can glean from, in our day and age, in our situation. He starts out with this new definition of spiritual leadership in verse 1. He really hits two points right there in verse 1. He says, then, this then, is how you ought to regard us. He's talking about spiritual leaders. This is how you ought to regard us. Two things, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So the first thing he says, we'll, we'll hit the first one first, is this. A spiritual leader is a servant. A spiritual leader is a servant. Paul actually uses a very different word than he would normally use. A lot of times when we see the word servant or slave of Christ, it's this word doulos, which literally means slave. But the word that he uses here to talk about that this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ is actually a word that can be translated as under rower. Under rower, which is probably a word you haven't used recently, at least in normal conversation. You probably haven't been like, yes, I'm supposed to be an under rower for Jesus. Um, so I wanted to I have a picture up here that will help you understand what an under rower is. And uh, I got this off of Google Images. So if it's a little grainy, sorry. But you can see there's kind of a cutout. It's not normally cut out there, but you can see the people on the bottom of the ship, these old Roman warships. You've seen these on television in you know, different movies and things like that, where all of a sudden the oars kind of go out to the side and they all start moving in unison. You know, they start going back and forth, back and forth. And this is how the, the Roman warships would, would maneuver around. And so an under rower, servant that, that Paul uses here, an under rower were people who were literally rowing on the lowest level of a Roman warship. And even though you can see them here, that's just a cutout so that you can see them. In actuality, they were under the deck. They were closed in. Under rowers could not see where they were going. Isn't that huge? I mean, they're literally, they're in a dark, dank area. All they knew, all they did was to keep in the beat of the captain's drum. So there was a drum. And all of them in unison would pull back all together, all together at the same time. And if you just decided you wanted to be a wingnut and do your own thing, it would be bad news for you. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh, wow, everything all gets pulled up and it, it's, it's, it's a mess. So under rowers couldn't see where they were going. All they could do was listen to the captain's orders, which meant sometimes he said, stop. And everybody would have to stop and put on the brakes and the whole thing would stop. He said, move left, which meant that some of them would have to stop. The other ones would actually start rowing so that they could maneuver around. Because don't forget, this was a warship, which means that maybe they had no idea what was going on on the outside. But, but truly, their obedience to the captain's orders was either winning or losing a battle of which they had no idea what it was. 
And I think that's sometimes what it means to be a spiritual leader. We may not understand how our actions or our, our obedience or our worship or our praise has in the grand scheme of things only to realize that God calls you to be an under rower on his warship and to stay in line, to keep in line with his beat, to stay in cadence with him. Amen? It's huge. Um, and so they're not supposed to do their own will. In fact, if they did, they could be risking their own lives or the, the lives of everybody on, on the ship. And so they had to trust that the captain knew what he was doing, even though they couldn't see it. So, so Paul says, be an under rower. You want to be, you want to be a spiritual leader? Be an under rower for Jesus. The best commentary on this is probably John the Baptist. John the Baptist said in, in John 30, 30, 3.30, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. So the role of a spiritual leader is continually laying down your own pride, continually laying down your own selfishness and listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the master, the captain, the commander. And so Paul says, if you want to be a spiritual leader, be an under rower for Jesus. And then the second thing he says in verse 1 is that a spiritual leader is a steward. So some translations, it's translated steward. Other translations, it's like you've been entrusted with something. It's that same idea that a spiritual leader is a steward. What is a steward? Well, a steward is not an owner. A steward manages what the owner owns. They are given trust, given authority to manage the, the, the owner's, the master's affairs, but they don't actually own any of it. It's kind of much like if you have investments, retirement, you give your money to an investment banker, to, a, to, to an investor, and then they don't own it, but they get to manage it on your behalf. And they manage it for the most maximum effectiveness for the greatest return. And so being a steward means that essentially, even for me, as a spiritual leader, I am expendable, which is a hard thing for spiritual leaders to realize. That, that they are expendable. Like my role, and I mean this in a good or bad way, but when you, when you understand what it means, it's like my role is, is to shepherd, to guide, to teach, to lead, to, to encourage, to correct, to protect, and to care for God's people. Like that's, that's my role as, as a pastor. But, but you're not mine. You belong to God. Like I... I'm stewarding the people that God has placed in our care in this body, local body of believers that we call New Life Church, but I don't own you. I don't control you or manipulate you. And when a spiritual leader forgets that they are a steward, then they will begin to try building their own castle rather than God's kingdom. So you are a servant and you are a steward. And he goes on in verse 2, he says, Now it's required that those who have been given trust must prove faithful. A steward is someone who has not only been given responsibility, but they've also been given authority to 
do whatever the master asks them to do with the master's affairs. So they're not given just authority to do their own will. You don't just say, Here, here's my money, do whatever you want with it. No, the, the master says, here's my money. I, I want you to invest in this, but not in this. I want you to do long-term, not short-term. I want you to do this, but not this. And, and so essentially the success of a steward is judged on the steward's faithfulness to the master. Let me say that one more time. The success of a steward is judged solely on the steward's faithfulness to the master. And so Paul is addressing something kind of in the Corinthian church that I think that we can relate to, especially in our day and age. And it's this, that churches have long elevated leaders who are high in charisma and low in character. So they can speak well and teach well and do these great things, but, but their character can't sustain the celebrity status that we kind of push them up to. And so charisma can, can draw crowds under themselves, but character will point people to Jesus. And so for a long time now, and I think the Corinthians were dealing with this because they're like, well, we like Cephas. No, we like Paul. No, we like Apollos. I think in the same way, we can raise and elevate leaders with high gifts of charisma, but not necessarily character. And so a steward can be charismatic. A steward can draw a crowd and build an organization. A steward can be loved or hated, criticized or praised. Like, it really doesn't matter. Don't miss this. At the end of the day, a steward is judged on the faithfulness to the master's orders solely. Which means, like, you can love me or hate me or criticize or praise, and, but at the end of the day, I have one judge that I have to answer to. And I'm not judged by the people's vote or by popular opinion. Like, in the end, a steward is answerable to one person, the owner, the master, where we hope that one day he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a big deal. And I think the thing is, is that, like, not... It doesn't mean that we're supposed to just dismiss wisdom from other people. It just means that there is only one judge's opinion that truly matters. In fact, Paul says it in so many words. He says in verse 3, I, I care very little if I'm judged by you. <laughs> he just says it right there to him. Or by any human court. He's like, not only by you, but by anybody. He's like, I don't even care. And then he says something really interesting, which really like, the other part stuck, stuck out to me, but this last part hit me hard. It says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. Like, Paul's like, I, I don't even, I'm not even a good judge of myself. Isn't that interesting that he's like, I don't even judge myself. And I think it's interesting because we tend to think that we are the best judges of ourselves, don't we? I mean, you don't, don't, don't you accuse me of something. You don't know me. I know me. I know why I did it. You don't know why I did what I do. Only I know why I did what I did, right? Like, we think that we're like the best, the, the, the best judges of ourselves. But if we're really honest, and I think Paul, this is huge what Paul's communicating here, is that most times when we judge ourselves, we will either judge ourselves either too harshly or too leniently. Either we'll fall on the side of like, I can never do anything right. I'm never good enough. I'm never smart enough. I always screw this thing up. I'm not a good Christian. I can't lead. Everything I do is wrong. Or we're real lenient with ourselves. A lot of grace. A lot of grace over here. A lot of grace. 
well, you know, I mean, my mom put my diapers on too tight, and if you knew why I, what I went through in my past, then you would excuse my bad behavior just like I do. Right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like, you, if you knew, if you understood why I did what I did, then you'd be okay with me being crummy and mean to you. Because, well, I'm, I understand why I did what I did, and that makes it okay. And so, honestly, I think what Paul is communicating is so huge. He's like, I don't even judge myself because I'm not even a good judge of myself. I think I know why I did what I did, but I actually don't even always know why I do what I do. And neither do I want to excuse myself or beat myself up for things that I'm not responsible for. It's interesting because I think there's always a danger in believing your own press release. It will either puff you up or deflate you. Like if I was waiting every Sunday, I'm like, I'm going to go over in the connect corner. I hope somebody says, Pastor, you did such a good job, right? Because if they don't, then I'm just going to melt, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, look, I hope that you say that. I hope you're like, yeah, that was a great word. Thank you so much. But at the end of the day, I'm actually not living for your praise because if we live for the praise of people, we will die by their criticism. At the end of the day, I'm like, Lord, I, I know that I've tried to do diligently. I've studied. I've handled your anointing the best way that I can to, to proclaim your word in integrity and a clean and pure heart before God's people. And that's all I can do. So I hope that I can stand before you and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because I serve one master. He's the one that I answer to. So I hope you like it. But if at the end, like, I really hope he does. I hope... I hope that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And so Paul's like, yeah, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. And then he asks three questions. And these three questions, if you just sat on verse 7 all week, it changed your life. Verse 7, he says this. Gets to the root of pride in verse 7. Number one, for who makes you different than anyone else? Number two, what do you have that you did not receive? And number three, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? <laughs> I mean, he just like dropped the mic. He could have stopped at verse seven and been like, signed Paul. I mean, the humbling questions. Essentially, he's reminding them, he's telling them, don't forget that you are a steward. That everything that you have is something that you've received, which means that your position is something you've received, which means that your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your talents, your money, your house, your car, your spouse, your kids, the very air that you're breathing is on loan to you. You got to give it back. He's like, you are a steward. Why would you act like you own it? Or that it's been something that you didn't, receive as a gift. And so a spiritual leader knows that they're a steward, not only that they're a servant, but that they're a faithful steward. And then he changes things up a little bit. In verse 14, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. The third point is this, a spiritual leader is a father. A spiritual leader is like a father. And Paul is warning them like a father loves his kids. That's what he says right there. He's like, I'm not trying to shame you guys. Look, I'm trying to warn you 
He's trying to cover them. So spiritual authority is not meant to manipulate. It's not meant to control. It's meant to cover. And in your notes, it says, belonging to a spiritual family brings authority that covers you. Paul said in chapter three, we said this a couple weeks ago, that the church is a family and the goal is to grow up. And so spiritual leadership in your life, in the family of God, in a local church, uses authority not as something to wield or to shame or to lord over people, but rather to cover them so that they can grow up. If you've been under a family, parents, mother, father that have exposed you, that have, that have just made fun of you, that have told you that you're nothing, that have shamed you, that have guilted you, that have condemned you, you understand that you don't actually grow up right. You grow up crooked. But when a father doesn't work in shame, but works in love to cover, not to expose, the child can grow up straight, grow up strong. And so when you are in spiritual leadership, you are to love those under you like a parent loves and cares for their own children. And God was putting this on my heart this week that shame is not a tool of the kingdom of God. So if you've been under spiritual leadership that has used shame, guilt, condemnation to manipulate you and control you, essentially, they have been trying to use a tool of the enemy to bring about a godly result. And it never works. It may get you to motivate you, but it never inspires you to become something that you're not. You're always in a place of trying to conject, to get into a place to, to please somebody else. It's powerful. They're using a tool of the enemy to bring about a godly result. It is not a tool of the family of God. Shame is not a tool to be used and wielded by the kingdom of God. Love is the cover. And he goes on in verse 15. He says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. The second point under the fatherhood thing is belonging to a spiritual family brings alignment that protects you. Brings alignment that protects you. Paul says, you, you, you've got a lot of teachers, but not many fathers. It's important to understand what, that, that Paul is not degrading teachers. He's not saying, like, we don't need Bible teachers. You don't need any more Bible teachers. No, we need good, wholesome Bible teachers that are teaching the Word of God, especially in this day and age. We need people who are, are willing to, to preach the Word of God, even if it's not popular, right? Like, he's not saying we don't need that. The problem is, and that I think it's the same problem that we're facing, that the same problem that they're facing in, in Corinth, is that we have many teachers that we listen to, but few fathers that know us and love us. We've got podcasts that we're listening to, but few people who know us, few people who warn us, few people to point out our blind spots. Because a podcast doesn't point out your blind spots. Podcast doesn't know you. A celebrity pastor has no idea the things that are going on in your life. Like who knows you? Who warns you? Who can talk to you in ways that you're like, man, <laughs> I want to smack you. <laughs> who loves you enough to write a letter like this to you? Who, who knows you and loves you enough to not only tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear? 
And this is the heartbeat of what Paul is bringing to these people that he dearly loves. He's bringing alignment that protects. And then he says in verse 18, he goes on. He says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. In other words, like daddy's coming home, okay? He says, but I'm going to come very soon if the Lord's willing. And then I'll find out how, not, not only how many arrogant people are talking, how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And then he gives them, this is a perfect dad move right here in verse 21. He's like, what do you prefer? Should I come with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? He's like, I got two hands. I'm coming. You want me to bring, you want me to bring this hand, hand of correction? Or do you want me to bring this hand, a hand of affection? Which, which one? Because it all is going to depend on how you handle this letter that I'm sending you right now. Because I'm showing up. I'm coming. Lord willing. I love it. Like he's just, here's the reality. And this is sometimes we need to hear this as Christians because our culture is so weak is that, sorry, um, sometimes, sometimes protection comes in the form of correction. Oh, I, well, if you left me, you wouldn't tell me that. No, no, I love you. That's why I'm telling you. Like, I'm actually, I love you. I'm protecting you in a way that you may not receive as protection, but it's correction and it's still protection. And Paul's like, I'm coming. I'll I'll bring either one, which one you want. And he loves them too much not to correct them. And I was thinking about this. Um, It's not socially acceptable in these days to um, discipline somebody else's kid, right? So, Katie and I were at the uh, airport in this past week, and um, we just gotten out of the out of the plane. We were going to the baggage terminal, um, and um, there was a, a child. We heard the child before we even came into the area. The, this this child was um, vomiting noise. That's the only way, a good way of explaining it. I mean, it was just like a, an endless stream of scream. Like, it didn't end. It, I barely took breath. I didn't hear many breaths. And it, the mouth was like this. Like, it was just loud noise coming. And, you know, you kind of want to like, oh, my goodness. Like, you're, the kid's not hurt standing there just screaming for a long time. And I'm like, where's the mom? Where's the parents? Is this kid alone? <laughs> we look over. And, and the mom is literally like from here to here from the child like this. Like for like 20 minutes, 20, acting like the child is not theirs. Now, here's my point. It's not socially acceptable for us to correct other, pe- other people's children, but for the love of God, correct your own. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Please. I'm going I'm to go over there like, hey, sweetie, hi. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'd freak her out even more because that would be freaky to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, come on. But I'm like, stop this. Are you kidding me? This is your child. Do you not see this child? Now, here's the thing. I know we've all been there before where we've gone on road trips with our kids and we're like, this is the worst decision of my life, right? Or if you've ever driven, been on a plane with young children, you're like, I give up. Jesus, take the wheel. Like, I'm gone. 
I'm done. I'm done with this. So I understand that. I have almost grace and mercy for this woman. I'm sure that she was just at her wit's end, but I'm just like, what in the world is going on right now? And I think Paul is like, don't you make me pull this car over. I'm coming. I'm going to bring, I got two hands. I can bring correction or I can bring affection, but it depends on how you handle this, right? He's like, because I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And, and, and I think that Paul, like a good dad, is loving them. And sometimes it comes in the form of, of correction. And I think what Paul found concerning with the Corinthian church is the same thing that I find concerning in the church of today. And it is this, and I'm about to poke you a bit, so get ready. We tend to be heavy-handed with those outside of the church and not heavy-handed with those inside of the church. We want to spank the world and spoil the church. And Paul says, I got two hands, but I don't know if you guys caught this, but take a look at the top of this, this letter. I'm not writing it to the whole city of Corinth. I'm writing to the Jesus followers in the body of Christ in the Corinthian church. I'm writing to those inside the church so we can go and talk about everything that's going on in the world and all the things that are happening and how the world's going to hell in a handbasket and Corinth's going all bad and everybody's horrible. I'm, I'm not writing to them. I'm writing to you. I, I'm actually coming at you. And I, I think the hard part is that the problem that we face is that those inside of the church want a hand of compassion, affection, while they wield a hand of correction to those outside of the church. And so we will readily judge the blatant sins of the world outside, while the church tries to avoid judgment by trading in blatant sins for those that are easier to hide. And Paul, like a good parent, is unwilling to wink at or dismiss bad behavior just because it isn't as bad as the world. Since when was the world's behavior a litmus test for God's approval? Since when was, was anything in the Bible just like, hey guys, here's the line and here's the world. This is what they're doing. They're kind of doing this. If you just stayed like this, this close to the line, that'd be great. And I'm, I'm happy with you. If you just... If you could just look at the world and just do a little bit better than them, awesome. What, why in the world would we think that? And I, I want to leave you with this word. I, I believe it's a prophetic word. I wrote it down, and, it's, and it says this. Revival does not come when the world stops acting like the world. Revival comes when the church starts acting like the church. It's time for the church to rise up. Yeah, sure. The, house going, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay. But the, the world only changes when the church changes, when the church rises up. <laughs> Revival comes when the church starts acting like the church. Why don't you stand with me? Paul says in, um, in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to have communion together. We didn't forget, by the way. I wanted to do it at the end. Um, so maybe you already ate yours. You're like, I guess maybe I missed it. I fell asleep. I don't know. Um, 
You can start working on those pieces of cellophane. You're welcome. Um, if you're joining with us online, then grab a cracker, cookie, um, some juice to, to take part in communion with us. I want to read a scripture to you, and it's, it's part of the reason why I wanted to do communion at the end in response to this word. In verse 16, Paul says a, an outlandish comment. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Imitate me. And then he says in 17, for this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will, catch this, remind you. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And the last point on your notes is this, that belonging to a spiritual family brings a legacy that reminds you. Think about the, the, this church that he's writing to. They had not seen Jesus in the flesh. They had no Bible to read. I mean, this, they had the Old Testament. This, old, this is part of the New Testament that we, that we enjoy and have 15 of them in many different translations laying around our house. Like, they had none of this. Like, this was the Word of God for this church, for these people. They, all they had was spiritual leadership like Paul to look to, to imitate, to, to follow the example of. And so they had this guy named Paul, the apostle, who wasn't a perfect man. He didn't claim to be perfect but a man who loved them like a father, a man who invested in them like a steward, and a man who led them like a servant. And I think that's what he's saying to them. He's like, imitate me in that. I'm not perfect, but imitate me in loving the body of Christ like a father loves and covers. Imitate me in Invest in God's people like a steward and lead like a servant. Do that. Imitate me in that. And, and this, this man's lifestyle literally reminded them of the way of life in Christ. And he sends Timothy to, for that very same purpose, to remind them of the way of life in Christ. Because church, sometimes our sin, your sin, my sin, is not due to deliberate rebellion. Sometimes it's due because we just forget the way. We don't turn our back on Jesus. We just turn our eyes off of him. It's human nature. We see it all through with the Israelites. We see it all through and even in our own lives. Like so much of what we get tripped up by is not that we're rebelling against Christ. It's that we simply forget him. We forget him. And I think that's the beauty of what we do in communion, we remember. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus instated it. I think it's part of the reason why just a few verses, chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reminds them again why we do communion, to remind them of the way of life in Christ. And so as we take communion today together, I want to encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to remind you, to remind you where you've been, to remind you of where you're headed, to remind you of your calling, to remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus. And if that comes in the form of correction to your spirit, just know that it's not meant to bring shame, guilt, or condemnation. It's meant to bring freedom. And so if God is like 
putting something on your heart that you're supposed to bring, that he's bringing correction to, you don't need to pray about it. You just need to correct it. Start walking in a different way because we tend to forget. Church, the Corinthians were waiting for the possible return of Paul with both hands ready. We're waiting for the most definite return of Jesus. So as the Holy Spirit puts things on your heart, walk in response and obedience to it as a steward, as a servant, and as a father. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. In other words, don't forget it. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance, like here it is again, of me. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus, in a day where we are it's so easily distracted by the things of this world and the shiny things <laughs> that call us Lord, I pray that you would help each and every single one of us to be reminded of the way of life in Christ and that we're not called to compare ourselves to the world. We're called to walk in obedience to the master's beat of the drum. May we hear that. May the Holy Spirit continue to speak to each and every single one of us. And may we respond in obedience as faithful stewards. May we serve others as good servants. And may we love others and cover them as good fathers. We thank you. We thank you.